Hey guys, so it's ACOG week, and that means that the Chiefs are away, and Nick and I, who are still currently third years, are playing Chief this week at our hospital. It's been really hard, but the one thing that isn't hard and will make your life easier as a Chief is the OBG Project. That's right. So... OBG Project, again, is an online resource putting together clinical guidelines, the latest literature, in an easy-to-read, digestible format. And as a chief resident, you can have OBG First, their premium subscription project, for free. So OBG First is a subscription process, just like Nick talked about, that allows you to make your own library on the OBG Project website. And they also will send you daily updates of the most relevant research that has come out recently, as well as clinical summaries of the newest guidelines. Check out our website, creogsovercoffee.com, where you can find a link to see how you can get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. weeks back, we brought you part one of HIV, where we talked primarily about HIV in the non-pregnant person. So today we're going to talk about pregnancy and special considerations. Hey, what do we've got for learning objectives today? So for today, we are going to review uh, HIV screening recommendations in pregnancy, because last time we talked about HIV screening recommendations just for people outside of pregnancy. We'll talk about labor and delivery um, and how that pertains to HIV-affected women. And we'll also talk about obstetric complications and special issues with HIV-affected women in pregnancy. Some readings that you can reference for this podcast would be the ACOG Committee Opinion on Prenatal and Perinatal HIV testing, as well as the committee opinion on labor and delivery management of women with HIV. So Nick, let's get started. What are the recommendations for HIV screening in pregnancy? Yeah, so similarly to what we talked about outside of pregnancy, HIV testing in pregnancy is also performed in an opt-out fashion. I mean, ACOG again reiterates with this that if a patient decides to opt out, physicians should document that choice, but also should simultaneously reassure the patient that their care will not be compromised. They also recommend that with all HIV screening, though particularly in pregnancy, HIV be performed with rapid testing that's available within one hour. Hmm. And this testing should be performed really at two time points. First, as part of the initial prenatal visit, and then again in specific populations in the third trimester, preferably before 36 weeks. Faye, what are some of those populations? So these populations are women at facilities with a prevalence of HIV greater than 1 in 1,000 deliveries or in areas of increased incidence, women who are incarcerated, women with viral symptoms and concerns for HIV infection, those who have a diagnosis of another STI within the past year, IV drug use or a sex partner with IV drug use, those who exchange sex for money or drugs, and those who have new sex partners, multiple sex partners during pregnancy or sex partners known to be affected with HIV or who are at high risk of HIV infection. All right, so we're done with screening. Let's move on to antenatal care. So how does this differ in um, women who are affected by HIV versus women who don't have HIV, Nick? With HIV care in pregnancy, 
just like outside of pregnancy, the goal is to reduce the viral load or HIV RNA level to as close to zero as possible and to have that level for as zero as long of a time as possible because that's what's going to ultimately reduce vertical transmission or transmission to the infant. Right. Faye, there are some recommendations for when we should get those HIV RNA levels. I feel like that's something that I'm always having to think about or always having yeah, to ask me too. about. Do you know what those are? So essentially you want to get it at the first prenatal visit, the HIV RNA levels and the viral load. And then two to four weeks after changing or initiating ART regimens, and then monthly until uh, RNA viral loads are undetectable. And then at least every three months during pregnancy. And you want to get at least one measurement between 34 to 36 weeks to help inform decisions regarding mode of delivery. Speaking of mode of delivery and timing of delivery, how does this differ? Yeah, so you kind of hit the nail on the head there is that the viral load is going to be what really helps us make a decision or at least to talk with the patient about our recommendation for a mode of delivery. Um, in women who have a viral load of greater than 1,000 copies per ml at or near delivery, so usually at that 34 to 36-week mark like you mentioned, or whose levels are unknown independent of whether they're using um, antiretroviral therapy or not, ACOG recommends a scheduled cesarean delivery at 38 weeks and zero days. This really should be discussed with the patient in the context of what is my risk of vertical transmission to the infant. Mm -hmm. um, we know that the risk of vertical transmission is proportional to the viral load. So somebody who has a viral load of 1,000 is going to be at much lower risk of vertical transmission than somebody who has a viral load of a million. At about 1,000 or less, the risk of vertical transmission has not been shown to be greater than 2%. Okay. Um, and it doesn't seem to differ much at a viral load of less than 1,000. So for these patients with a viral load of less than 1,000, that your timing of delivery really can follow any other obstetric indication. And your mode of delivery just follows the usual obstetric indications. These patients can just wait until spontaneous labor, which is great. Um, and there's no data to suggest that elective delivery before 40 weeks of gestation reduces the risk of vertical transmission. So no need to induce either. Got it. Nice. Faye, one thing that I encounter with patients who are undergoing delivery, um, regardless of vaginal delivery or cesarean delivery, is that they need to get started on antiretroviral medicine during labor. Yeah. Can you remind us of what exactly we need to do based on what the patient characteristics are? Yeah. So um, you kind of talked about different patient characteristics. So let's break this down into first mode of delivery and also patient. So let's talk about C-section first, and then we'll talk about um, patients who are having a vaginal delivery with a non-suppressed viral load and those who are undergoing a vaginal delivery with a suppressed viral load. Sounds good. So for C-section, in someone who is having a pre-labor cesarean section, you'll start them on zidovudine, two migs per kg, over an hour as a loading dose. You should initiate this at least three hours prior to their C-section and then follow this up with one mig per kg per hour infusion for two hours until delivery. In patients who are having a vaginal delivery with a non-suppressed viral load, they should have the same regimen as above at the start of in-house labor monitoring. And finally, with vaginal delivery with suppressed viral load, this is controversial. Really, it's not required if their viral load is less than 1,000. But some evidence point to a higher risk of transmission with viral loads of 50 to 999. So the committee opinion defers to clinical judgment. 
Um, in terms of the newborn, regardless of viral load, suppression should be started on that newborn. So they should get antiretroviral therapy, whether or not mom has a viral load of zero or 10 million. So Nick, what about some obstetric complications that we should think about with HIV? Yeah, I guess let's start with uh, something that I never really thought about until taking a look at the committee opinion is like prom or P-prom, right? Like break your water. That's when we think like that barrier between mom and fetus is broken. Is your risk going to be higher then? Yeah. Unfortunately, the data is pretty shoddy. There's not a lot there according Mm -hmm. to the committee opinion. In term prom, it says women with a viral load of less than 50 there's no difference in the risk of vertical transmission if PROM is less than or greater than four hours. This is based on a UK study with maybe only like 70 patients or something like that. So small numbers, but ACOG basically extrapolates that and finds that vaginal delivery is likely safe in women with a viral load of less than 1,000. In women who have unsuppressed viral loads, that data is really cloudier. And again, ACOG usually recommends that with an unsuppressed viral load, your mode of delivery is going to be cesarean. But now you've ruptured membranes. No, do you just go ahead and perform vaginal delivery, especially if they're favorable or they're already like moving through labor, right? Mm -hmm. Some data say that there's actually no risk to vertical transmission in this group. And there's other data that says there's up to like a 2% increased risk per hour of PROM. Yeah, that's pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's all over the place, apparently. Yep. Really, ACOG defers to local expertise in this area. So they say, contact your repro ID person at your institution. If you don't have a repro ID person, you can contact the National Perinatal HIV AIDS Information Center. We'll have the phone number listed on our website. It's an institution that's located at UC San Francisco. They're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they take calls from all over the country to help develop an individualized plan. Finally, with PPROM in particular, ACOG actually doesn't address this in the committee opinion. Um, And from what I could tell, just researching it, there just aren't a lot of studies on this topic. There are just some retrospective things looking at just very, very small numbers of patients. The expert opinion, as far as I could tell, is just that you would initiate antiretroviral therapy if it hasn't already been started for that patient. And then because you're weighing the risk of prematurity versus the risk of vertical transmission, I usually defer to the obstetric indications for delivery. Another thing, Faye, that we can talk about are um, zidovudine-resistant HIV, because there are some strains of HIV that are actually resistant to what we'd usually use in labor. Yep. Um, And the data actually suggests that we should still give zidovudine, that there's some benefit actually to the neonate in terms of reducing the risk of vertical transmission even in this particular population. Um, The only exception, I guess, to this rule would be if somebody has like a true allergy to zovidine, then you should pick something different in consultation with a repro ID person. Hey, what about drug interactions? I feel like this is one that we always have to think about with the HIV medicines. Yeah, certainly. So one thing we need to think about in someone who's going through labor or having a C-section is bleeding, right? We want to make sure that they're not having a postpartum hemorrhage or if they're going to have one that it's controlled within a relatively short period of time. Absolutely. So unfortunately, there are interactions um, with HIV medications that can occur in the setting of postpartum hemorrhage. So for example, protease inhibitors all those medicines that end in NAVIR, N-A-V-I-R, can be significant inhibitors of CYP3A4 enzymes, thinking back to medical school. So on the other hand, there are medications like ethabarans, etrevirine, and nevirapine that are CYP3A4 inducers. So why does this matter? Well, 
one of the medications we use a lot is methergen, and this is metabolized by CYP3A4 enzymes. So when administered to patients who are on protease inhibitors, there can be significant vasoconstrictive effects and hypertensive emergencies have been reported in this setting. In patients on other medications, methergen can be rendered ineffective. So just things to think about. Gotcha. So maybe not pick methogen for this particular patient population. Exactly. What about um, scalp electrodes or operative delivery? I feel like that's another question that I think about and just don't know the answer to. Yeah. So again, data from this is generally from the pre-ART era. And so generally, um, we say that it's contraindicated given the risk of vertical transmission due to maternal fetal blood mixing. That said, if there are clear obstetric indications they're not expressly contraindicated. So if you really need to get baby out with some forceps, um, you know, you can. Got it. So I I think one last thing to cover, Nick, is, of course, patient autonomy, right? All all we're doing as OBGYNs is giving someone recommendations. What does ACOG have to say about this? Yeah, so again, ACOG really uses language in the committee opinion trying to respect the autonomy of patients with HIV, recognizing that cesarean sections carry their own set of morbidity and complications. Um, And so really, patient autonomy needs to be respected regarding the mode of delivery. Mm -hmm. Um, Patients should be informed about the risk of vertical transmission, especially in light of a viral load of greater than 1,000 and the recommendation for C-section. But conversely, if a patient who has HIV and is well-suppressed viral load says, I want a C-section because I think that's going to reduce my risk more, that decision should be respected as well. So that really is kind of what ACOG comes out to say in terms of just, again, talking with your patient about the particular risks, about what the best evidence is that's available, and then coming to a decision together. Lafay, I think that wraps up our uh, HIV in pregnancy. Why don't we do a quick summary? The first thing we talked about was the HIV screening recommendations, which is, again, HIV in pregnancy is an opt-out kind of test. And they should be done at the first trimester and then again in the third trimester, usually um, before 36 weeks for select population. In antenatal care, it's important to note that the goal is to reduce the viral load to as close to zero as possible and to maintain it at zero um, for as long as possible. You should check viral loads at the first prenatal visit, two to four weeks after changing or initiating regimens, monthly until levels are undetectable, and then at least every three months during the pregnancy with one of those measurements between 34 to 36 weeks, help you inform you and your patient about delivery. And in terms of choosing the mode and timing of delivery, in women who have viral loads that are greater than 1,000 copies per milliliter near delivery, these women should be offered a scheduled cesarean section at 38 weeks to decrease their risk of vertical transmission. In women who have a viral load of less than 1,000, the timing of delivery should be uh, according to other obstetric guidelines or indications, and you can even await spontaneous labor, and these women should be allowed to have a trial of labor. With respect to prophylactic medications during delivery, zidovudine is the agent of choice. Um, you use it pretty much in all patients with the exception of patients undergoing a vaginal delivery with a suppressed viral load. It's controversial in this particular population. There's some evidence that points to its use. Um, you should talk with a repro ID specialist for more information. Moving on to obstetric complications in HIV, talking about PROM and PROM. The data, unfortunately, is pretty spotty here with some data saying that there's no increase in vertical transmission, while in others there may be an 
2% increased risk per hour of PROM. And so ACOG essentially says that with these patients, you should consult your resident repro ID doctor or call National Perinatal HIV AIDS Information Center. We then talked about a couple of other things with respect to delivery, including the fact that even in the setting of zidovudine-resistant HIV, you should still give it. There are drug interactions, particularly with methergen, that can be rendered super effective or super side effectful with the use of medicines that are protease inhibitors, or it could be rendered totally useless with efavirenz, etraverine, and nevirapine. In talking about FSEs and operative delivery, generally these things are contraindicated. However, if there are clear obstetric indications, ACOG says you can go ahead and do these things. The final word, patient autonomy should be respected when planning for mode of delivery. All right, I think that brings us to the end of our episode on HIV and pregnancy. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you liked what we had to say on the show today, give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is. You can also find us on social media at Twitter on CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, on our website at www.creogsovercoffee.com, on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee, and on our newest social media platform, Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And finally, if there's anything that you feel like that we missed on this show, any corrections that you have or an idea for a future show, give us a shout out, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.